Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Welcome to Powers in Play on TV7 News Israel, the second uh, program of the sort due to popular demand after we launched uh, this uh, series a few weeks ago. Powers, namely superpowers, regional powers, local powers. And we have uh, four powers here in the uh, studio. Uh, Retired Ambassador and former Deputy Foreign Minister Danny Ayalon, Retired Colonel Miri Eisen, again, retired Colonel and Dr. Iran Lerman, and retired Air Force Colonel Ruven Ben Shalom. Each of you have many other titles, and um, we will uh, try to add your mini CVs um, to each viewer on demand. <laughs> on this program, let's try to map the hotspots in the world according to precedence, according to what you think are the most pressing, or perhaps, if not too urgent, what could explode a bit later. And once we list all of those uh, hotspots, we will try to see whether there are solutions, whether the uh, nations of the world can converge, can find uh, mechanisms, Uh, be they uh, international, multinational, um, whether they try to improvise by having uh, quads and uh, trios and uh, what have you as combinations to to find uh, solutions to these problems. And as we saw, the climate crisis and other problems do bring together several nations, uh, even those with adversarial relations between them. So let me turn to you, Miri Eisen. What, to your mind, we have so many problems now. We have Russia and Ukraine, China and Taiwan, uh, Belarus. Um, One can go on and on. What's your favorite, quote unquote, crisis? My, My crisis of choice, I just love the idea, is the combination of drought and migration which doesn't necessarily put it on one spot on the map. I think that it impacts all spots on the map. We tend to look at migration as something that happens all the time. We tend to look at drought as something that we can face. I think the combination of the climate change, of the growing drought, which is bringing about an enormous movement of people, because if they don't have water, they are going to move. When I look specifically within the Middle East, I see that type of impact. Here I also see both the good and the bad, meaning 
powers that are facing these issues and powers that are trying to close down their doors, build very high walls. I don't think there's a wall high enough in any country to stop people looking for water. But isn't it because of the difference between foreign affairs and domestic politics? Uh, the leaders of these countries are not being elected by foreigners. They are being elected by their own constituencies. And many of those oppose the entry of migrants, be they uh, migrant workers or refugees, um, for various social and economic reasons. When we look at the challenge of where people are going to move to, we're talking about mass numbers. <clears throat> I can't see these countries shooting into these mass numbers. We've already seen the implications over the decade of what happened here in the Middle Eastern turmoil. But the addition of drought, of lack of water, that's something that nobody's going to be able to play around with. I remind everybody that the droughts, on the one hand, are coming hand in hand with torrential rainfall in the other places that didn't have before. These weather climate changes are absolutely going to move everybody about. Reuven Ben Shalom, uh, you used to fly over big chunks of land, um, some of them fertile, some less so. From your vantage point, is our planet uh, going to change uh, so significantly that politics and policy will follow? Well, first, the, the pilot part doesn't give me an advantage, of course. But no, it was just, thank a, you for that. just a, a trick. Especially because we fly so low, you know, but, in, uh, in helicopters. Um, the, the issue that Miri brought up, I think, is, of course, very significant. But it's an interesting thing that we question of what the big problems of the world are sometimes from the perspective of those who are going to be influenced in a way, and this is a moral issue, in a way, in a way if we are a stable country and something, some skirmish is happening somewhere else and there's going to be a spillover into our country, then we see it as a problem. In a way, we live in a day and age where hundreds of thousands of people can be displaced and killed somewhere, but if it's not on the news, we don't really care. That's why, by the way, I will vote for Africa today probably is the most significant problem of the world, and that would align with what Miri said. The issue of climate change is serious, but I don't want to get into the scientific argument here, but even if we have an increase of you know, half a degree Celsius in the next uh, few decades, humanity could have solved that. That means if humanity would have put all its attention into technology and solving these problems of scarcity of resources, it would have been okay. We can't say here that Africa is inhabitable, right, in the next 50 years. That's not the case. Humanity can solve that. If we can get to the moon and Mars, we can inhabit Africa. But all the problems together that we'll probably discuss today, which is mostly the stupidity of mankind fighting, you know, over dominance and power and resources, that will continue as it happened a thousand years ago and two thousand years ago to happen in the next thousand years, which means we may see displacement and migration of millions of people. And certainly this, and I agree with Mary, this act of migration will be a serious, huge problem for all of the world. By the way, our ancestors um, knew well enough to settle here in the mountainous town or city of Jerusalem, because even the tsunami is not going mm -hmm. to get uh, so far and so high. We'll get to you, Iran, in a moment, but um, I'd like to, to ask uh, Danny, um, is there any uh, possibility, and uh, in your diplomatic career, you were also part of Israel's mission to the United Nations. Is there any possibility of uh, international organizations getting together to solve these problems? 
Amir, the, I would say that the short answer is no. Unfortunately, we do not see any coherence. We do not see any uh, pulling together. Quite, uh, quite the opposite. We see different countries pulling different ways. Uh, a lot of um, very, very national, narrow nationalistic uh, uh, interests. I think if there is a solution, and I believe there is a solution, uh, if we put, you know, the, the, the major problem would be in the next 50 or 100 years is, uh, uh, to or, or what are the challenges, is to ensure food security, water availability, and affordable energy. And I think all of this can be achieved, uh, if not by the UN, by individual countries. I can tell you here, and you all know, uh, at least as I do, that Israel is pretty much at the forefront of all these areas whereby uh, we can have water, not only here, but we can supply water to the Gulf countries. I believe that the part of the motivation of these Gulf countries to come to the Abraham Accords is because of Israel's technology, assuring them food security and uh, water availability. So I think this is something which, for the long haul, is not too dangerous, although I do agree in principle with what uh, Miri and, and Ruven said. I think that, uh, and again, Ruven alluded to it, I think the next crisis will come out of stupidity of people, or as we call it, miscalculation, which means out of political reasons. And Amir, you know there are so many hot spots. And if I go by process of elimination, you know, let's say hot spot in uh, Africa, between Ethiopia and Egypt, uh, I don't think that this would be something nearby. First of all, there is no wherewithal by these two countries. There is not common border, so it's a difficult, um, you know, proposition. Then, of course, you have the Far East, Taiwan. Here, I think, given the major stakes. I think these two countries are quite experienced to really hold back. And I think we can look uh, very favorably at the fact that last week, the two leaders, Xi and uh, Biden, spoke in a video conference. And I think this may be put off the, uh, the, the front burner. And then, of course, you have Iran. Iran also, quite interesting. I don't see it as coming as a major, um, you know, uh, flagrant uh, uh, crisis because, again, the Americans will not allow it. I think we're going towards some kind of an agreement. With this agreement, Israel will not be able to do anything more than what it's doing now. So I think this is also something that we cannot uh, really think of something imminent. Don't strike off all of the crisis. We no, won't have so anything wanna, to talk so about. I want to say, worry, by process of elimination, I come to Europe. Europe has always been the problem. First world uh, <laughs> World War One, World War Two. He's doing I it think, again. <laughs> I think Ukraine. I think Ukraine and Russia, and the European Union, and the new force that they are trying to build now, the Compass, is the main point to watch. This is the most dangerous in our time. Now, a common border uh, is nice, but not necessary. Israel and Iran, Israel and Iraq in the nineties, right. and. The United States and Russia, even though Sarah Palin said that yeah. from Alaska she sees Russia, nevertheless, it's a bit uh, farther. Uh, you can have major opponents without uh, a common border. But yes, uh, you can try to send your proxies to border your enemy. Now, Iran, um, Danny, ingeniously enough, set the 100-year mark 
so that many of our viewers will not be around to, <laughs> to show uh, his mistake. Uh, you were uh, a senior official with the national security staff uh, whose task was to integrate what right. other ministries and organizations have been doing. What do you take out of all of this? Or well, did you bring any crisis from home? Well, uh, actually, I was struck by Miri's choice of imagery because what I had in mind was a very famous humorous comment by the first prime minister we ever had who had a sense of humor, <laughs> uh, namely Levi Eshkol. This well-known Ben-Gurion was, was born without that faculty. And uh, Charette had nothing to laugh about. But Eshkol famously, when he was still uh, the minister of finance, uh, met a delegation uh, of, of farmers and they were very worried. And they said, Eshkol, there's a drought. He said, where? They said, in the Negev. He said, ah, okay. I, I was worried a bit that it's in Kansas. In other words, a drought in Kansas, um, the failure of American leadership, the failure of American capabilities, is in my mind probably the most challenging question because how Iran acts, how Russia acts in, uh, in, on the Ukrainian border, ultimately how she's rising ambitions uh, drive the balance of power in the uh, Indo-Pacific, all will come to depend on whether or not the United States can re- The Beatles have a very nice uh, song about it. She's leaving home. She's <laughs> going places, yeah. definitely. And, um, and here we are lo we're looking at a, a man with uh, no term limit who cast aside the 10-year rule and uh, is increasingly uh, determined to uh, position China as a leader in world affairs. We see them meddling in, in the Gulf. The Americans have exposed an, an attempt to establish a military presence. And has already elevated himself to the status of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. And we know uh, that they're all over Africa. In, in many ways. And, and, and even uh, to some extent, his base on his base uh, his power on the military, and the military is becoming a, a, a problematic player. But amidst all of this, the question, is America falling apart, like, you know, uh, foreign affairs suggested? Decline and ago. fall. Decline and fall, and, and there's pieces falling off. And for them, of course, this is shortly after the uh, change of administration. And this them, is the cyclical uh, doctrine of history, empires... Rise and then fall. Yes, well, pe people have all read Paul Kennedy. Paul Kennedy turned out to be slightly wrong. He assumed the U.S. will decline and fall. It was the Soviet Union which disintegrated. But uh, the four years of Trump were more than some people writing here uh, in, in, uh, in the, the first, first the, the first four years. Well, that uh, the, the, the question of polarization, of of the incoherence of policy, of the swings uh, from one. Uh, extreme to the other on issues. Uh, if there is one element which we all need to pray and hope for is that the United States will re really assume its leadership position, which is still indispensable. But can we pray when there's separation between church and state? Well, Americans, I think, are more religious than most nations precisely because of the separation of church and state, because the church was not tainted by governmental power. More Americans, I think, by percentage, uh, go to church or synagogue or mosque on the weekends than Iranians do under the Mullah's regime. 
Um, so yes, we should. I think we should all offer our. Mary, if we pick up on uh, where Iran left, should the Middle East in general and Israel in particular be concerned about the Chinese expansion into it? The Chinese are bringing in a term that we haven't used inside our powers and plan tool much now, um, soft power to a large degree. But it isn't really soft power because there's a very hard element to it. They're bringing in economic development. They're bringing in money and construction. Hey, I'm sitting inside Jerusalem and not far from us in Haifa. The Chinese built a port in Israel too. This isn't something new. They come out, they bring in capabilities and in, in construction. And I think that in the Gulf countries, it's going hand in hand with feeling less and less the soft power impact of the United States. The United States right now in that sense, in hard power still exists, actually. The amount of bases has not gone, back, gone down. The amount of military personnel in Saudi Arabia, on the one hand, and in all the other Gulf countries has not gone down. But the U.S. presence, the impact of the United States as a model, I think has gone down, not, I would even say dramatically, and especially in the younger age group. And that means that when that next generation, the 25-year-olds, look around, they're not looking at the United States. But there is a distinct feature to what the Chinese are doing, and it's not the Chinese, it's China. Okay. It's a Chinese Communist Party, it's the leadership. Because many uh, earlier empires, the Netherlands, Portugal, um, the United States... They've already course. forgotten that they were colonial powers. No, not yes, only colonial, <laughs> but they followed the trade. They followed private merchants, and then tried to protect them because of national interests. But it's not the same if you have a centrally controlled plan and if each Chinese corporation, when it does its commercial bidding and then the work itself, is subordinate to some central authority in Beijing by law. It must give whatever data it has on the host countries, then it's another problem. Then you are facing a power. It's more power than soft. It may be very soft. They, they may smile at you, but they have to uh, obey. They have to salute and obey their masters in Beijing. And they are building a highway and a freeway and a seaway. And again, it's done in a way which I look at as being through the economic capabilities and not necessarily through the military. And we need to remember, as I said, that's the terminology of the soft power, not the fact that it's not hard, just in the sense that it's being done very strongly. It brings up that question right now of in economy and in technology, isn't that also um, a military capability nowadays just done in a very different way? The slogan being, the motto being, if you don't let us build your road, you'll fill our belt. <laughs> now, Danny, when you were ambassador in Washington, uh, you probably had contacts with the Chinese. Uh, this was uh, a few years back. Um, were they as assertive or do you see a trend over the last um, several years? Well, I think they were pretty assertive. Just an, <clears throat> an anecdote, uh, the Chinese, in, during my time in Washington, built a huge embassy. They moved their embassy from where it was to a place which was just in front of the Israeli em embassy. You know it on International Drive. Now, when they were digging, they found underneath the main cable 
of AT&T, you know, connecting all the communications of Washington underneath, just to tell you um, how smart they are or lucky or whatever. <laughs> that was a little fiasco which was kind of put under uh, the radar. If they dug any further, they would get to China. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Anyway, they dug a lot of information from, uh, from that, and they will continue to do that. I, I don't think that they are going to be... Um, more aggressive as they have been. I think they like their own turf in the South China Sea towards Taiwan, but I don't think that they will go any further. I think history shows that they were never really imperialistic. If anything, China was invaded, whether it was by uh, Japan or from the other side, by, by Russians and, and whatever. Uh, so I think they would try to continue and be the economic power. I think their idea is that they... Uh, uh, um, Wang, what the one Yuan will be the uh, common, uh, let's say, um, currency replacing the the U.S. dollar, and they will try to bring down the United States through economic power. Reuven, um, what should Israel do when it is crushed, squeezed between the giants? Um, it um, is quickly becoming. Uh, win-lose game. If you go with the Americans, they veto your relationship with the Chinese. We saw it uh, in the uh, UAE recently. The Americans uh, count on the Emiratis as their partners in the Gulf, yet when they find that there is a Chinese base being built there, they try to uh, tell the Emiratis to stop it, but they can't. Uh, what should Israel do? I think our entire stance should be changed. You know, our, our mindset should be changed. For years and years, we had this black and white scenario, good guys, bad guys. You know, if you're with us, then you're with us. But if a week later we see you visiting our enemy, that means you're siding with our enemy. So what does that mean about UAE representatives now visiting in Syria? It means nothing. It means that people know how to play this, this uh, multipolar game. And we have to be the same. We're a tiny country, which means... We also have to have that perspective in this kind of discussion. You know, this small country, Israel, will not necessarily save the problems of the world. We can hardly save, you know, save our own interests. No, it's the other way around. We can give uh, dispense with uh, That's our advice for, for others. Yeah, yeah. Which is a fascinating thing, by the way, because many times we see other skirmishes around the world and we say, what are they fighting about? This little enclave, give it back. <laughs> But when others look at us, and all of us deal with public diplomacy, we have a hard time explaining the complexities, you know, you don't understand. Isn't that the profession of the consultant? <laughs> so, so, so I think we have to change our perspective. I less and less think there's a big problem, because we are aligned strategically with the United States. Still, we can be very good friends with Russia, with China, and by the way, good partners, and have a good collaboration and dialogue with Russia, and we can play this entire game. I mentioned morals today, and I think morals play a part because we cannot have our only goal as stability. For instance, what happens if aliens take over the earth, right? They subjugate us and we're slaves. And there's stability, no one dies, we all have food. Is that good? Of course it's not good. So we can't even promote here totalitarian regimes. It seems to be like, the domestic uh, position of uh, almost so, everyone. So we have to be very careful what our calculation is. So more and more people understand our stance. And when I say, before Miri corrects me, by the way, I'll say, tiny country, but a powerhouse in many ways, not only military intelligence stuff, but of course, bringing good to the world from desalination to technology. And that is part of our, our goal, right? To 
improve the world. So I think we're not that bad and we are certainly not crushed. Iran, let, let me throw just one bucket of desalinated cold water <laughs> on what Reuven... Water from the air. Yes, yeah, just said. Uh, renewable yeah, in, in energy. The, in the Sahel, you cannot desalinate the sea, right? Right. Um, Prime Minister Begin and then Prime Minister Netanyahu started their terms in office by telling the Americans, we don't need your aid. We don't need your grants. We can get along. And then they found out that it's not so easy. And Israel still subsists on $4 billion a year, now not for economic aid, but for economic security uh, financing. It doesn't matter whether you call it this way or the other. But the Israeli budgeteers do not give up these $4 billion, at least. 3.8. Yes. 3.8 <laughs> plus Iron Dome, plus, plus, plus. And, and it's been folded into it, but that's okay. Um, yeah, plus the one some, billion. Some other countries yes. would be happy to get the point two Excellent. between the four and the three eight. So it turns out that Israel is hooked, is addicted to foreign aid. How can it really portray itself as a power when it is not independent? Well, it is. It is interdependent. Um, I believe that uh, given the size of the Israeli economy today, uh, basically we could dispense with this 1% of our national product um, if we wanted to. That's 1% of our Israeli national product. You've, you've seen the politicians. They fight or, or over less, or less, less. Or less. I mean, we are at four, $450 billion a year. We are, uh, in term, per capita, we are certainly... ranked now above some of the historical powers of Europe. So uh, this is not really a question about our economic need. It is more a question of a symbolism of American commitment, uh, which is very important for the stability of the region. Uh, And it is, I'm saying this very carefully, we should be very grateful for what we get from the American taxpayer, but it is in some ways a two-way street. It, for example, we were talking about China. It has generated an Israeli obligation and commitment not to sell the Chinese even one round of small arms ammunition, let alone sophisticated military systems. When we uh, refurbished one such Chinese system that, uh, system that we sold the Chinese when it was still allowed under American rules, that cost uh, the professional leadership of the Ministry of Defense, um, two, of, two of the most senior people in the, in the ministry. Only because they made lost good their careers. on an old contract. Yes, exactly. So uh, anyone who comes in, I used to say, anyone comes into the MOD compound has these two uh, heads on, 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 uh, on a pike uh, in his mind to be careful not to sell the Chinese anything. And that, of course, has uh, definitely great benefits from an American point of view. Uh, we deliver other uh, stabilizing uh, contributions to the region, which otherwise the United States would have been perhaps obliged to invest. So I be, and moreover, uh, when the commander of the Israeli Air Force um, speaks uh, warmly about the qualities of uh, the F-35s, uh, that is very much the, in the interest of the American uh, in the, uh, industri- military-industrial complex. So, 
uh, without uh, without uh, uh, underestimating the importance of, of the moral and, and historical obligations to Israel, it is a mutually beneficial relationship and will remain so. Nevertheless, I would hope to be able one to, to chart a, a um, trajectory in a generation or so that would wean us off this dependence in the same manner in which I was a minor player in that, but uh, um, Danny Halpern and others charted the uh, departure from dependence on economic aid, which, of course, could no longer be justified. He was the, 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 ESF, the minister for uh, economics uh, at the Israeli embassy. Uh, the Israeli embassy in Washington. And within a, a period of 10 years, we went from 1.2 to $0 billion dollars Uh, in terms in ESF, in economic support funds. But it was added to the military. Yeah. And half of it, over time, was added to the military. Can I offer it? Yes, please, Mary. I'm going to offer a totally different take, even if it's just for thinking about it for a moment. I think Reuven was the one who just mentioned also polarization, which is not just in the United States and in Israel and in most European countries and all over. I'm going to ask for a moment about not just the decline and fall of the United States, but about that strategic relationship. I worry. And when I say I worry, I look around and I go, do I want to shop around? Is that saying something to the United States that can bring about the wrong things? But I also wonder about my own independence in that sense. When I look around and I say the United States has gone through enormous polarization, and when we talk about the military establishment, when we talk about the governing establishment, there are very changing voices in Iran. They're not a generation away. And I worry about that. They're already out there. They're already part of the voices. And yes, sometimes we amplify them too much. You mean young Congress people, campuses? In, in that aspect, in the relationship with Israel. But I add into that that it's not just the polarization in the United States. It's in additional places. And I wonder, can I put myself on the high moral ground of not playing around with dictatorships that everybody plays around with? But I want to be an independent country with my moral ground. And I also want to be able to work in and around it because it worries me when the United States tells us what to do. I don't see that as something that I just... And I do it, and it's okay, because the United States is changing as well. But if I can come in yeah. on this, uh, there, there is still a major element of commonality, which has become more important as the present American administration walks away from some of what they see as the wreckage of the previous one. And that is our identity as a democracy. Uh, the decision of the Biden administration to convene a conference, a, a summit of the democracies, The, the Glasgow is everyone. Dictators and Democrats alike are facing the same global challenge. But then the, the democracies are once again uh, a focal point of American policy. That's a way of isolating the Chinese, among other things. The Russians. And the Russians, which are, well, cannot really be counted as a democracy today. Very significantly, they did not invite Erdogan, who was elected. But still, Turkey's conduct today raises questions about its democratic credentials. It, the two countries inv invited from the region, remarkably enough, are Israel and Iraq, which is a way of giving a, a boost to Kazemi for trying to, make, uh, to keep his country independent. But Reuven, isn't uh, uh, insisting on a democratic form of government in a neighboring country 
too much of a luxury for Israel? Can Israel afford to relate only to or with democracies? No, absolutely not. And also, I don't even think we need to preach it and certainly not preach to superpowers to try to impose democracy in a way I think America woke up to the fact that that is not going to happen anymore. It's a mistake. They can't go and do this nation building, right? Um, still, I do, I do think we have a very different philosophy from the Chinese, for instance, and I agree they don't, don't not only don't they want to expand physically, but they never had an ideology of exporting their ideas. They are special in their eyes, but they don't want to change anybody else. But for some reason in the West, the United States and Israel, we have this idea like we have to radiate our ideas and change people's perspective about, you know, God and earth. So I don't think we have to change anybody. Look at Syria, for instance, this, this horrible civil war going on for a decade, you know, millions of people affected and displaced and killed. Do I want to change Syria now? I, I mean, I wish well for my Syrian friends, my neighbors, but I'm not going to change them. What I want now? Stability, okay? I, I, don't even, I don't even think we have to do actions that will right now topple the Assad regime. And notice that is not our policy. Even. What do we want? Peace and quiet and stability for the foreseeable future. So, no, I, don't th I think we have to understand our place on the board and play the game right. And I talked a lot about morals today, but certainly morals don't dictate who I do business with. Take China. Don't we have problems with China? And I'm not going to say anymore because I want to visit China again. I love that place. Yes, there are issues. We have to work them out. We have to talk. We have to talk about short-term stability, long-term stability. One more point I will say. Remember that Israel, in our mind, we are here forever, right? Jerusalem is our capital forever and ever. The others are rising and falling. We're always here. Of course, our history proves this is not the case. History proves that we come, we're here for a couple of decades and then, so, or centuries, and then we're gone. So just just uh, to make sure for but our... We always return. We always <laughs> return. For so, our Chinese-minders... Reuven Ben Shalom loves you. Let him in again and again. Now, Iran, as a veteran intelligence officer, what follows from uh, what Reuven just said is that uh, if Israeli intelligence gets wind of a plot against Bashar Assad, the evil Bashar Assad, we should tell him. Take care. <laughs> the, the Democrats are going to assassinate you. Provocative. Um, no, that I don't think is going to happen. But we do which, have... Which part? Israel will not get win? Uh, well, um, I assume that the only way we can wind of it is if they tell us, and if they tell us, they're not capable of carrying things through. Um, the, uh, the truth is uh, we do have a conversation about the future of Syria with the one power which matters, Russia. which is the Russian, uh, following the Russian intervention. Now, that's a fascinating story because Russia today, after all, uh, is a, um, a country facing huge challenges with very limited resources. We need sometimes to remind ourselves that the Russian economy is just about four times the size of Israel's. It's the opposite of Saudi Arabia, a big economic power with no military with, power. With, with practically in the indefensible, whereas mm -hmm. Russia tries to support a huge military establishment uh, by a very, very weak economy. Um, and, and in a world in which uh, hydrocarbons are going down as a, as a factor, the Russian situation is going to get even 
more precarious. So Syria becomes the one great achievement asset that they can point to, and of course the, the land grabs in, in, from poor Ukraine, which is an even greater trouble. But that's not much. Syria is a bit of a uh, global, uh, globally significant achievement uh, for the Russians. And we have a conversation with them. We don't admire the fact that they are there. We don't admire Assad or his pretty wife or, or, or the regime, that uh, murderous regime they have established. But the combination of their influence and presence and the results of the civil war as they came out do create a prospect for stability. The one disrupting factor is the interest of Iran, which is to turn Syria into a battlefield. And so we actually have a commonality with Assad, paradoxically, in trying to tell the Iranians not to do that. Danny, um, a two-part question. Uh, how feasible is it uh, now, how uh, effective um, let's say, a veto in the UN Security Council. One um, of the American assets for Israel is that uh, if all of its enemies uh, converge against it, the United States will be there to veto a Security Council resolution. Is it, is it still an important part in uh, uh, foreign policy now? And add to that the uh, usage of sanctions and designations by the U.S. administration, administrations throughout the years, sometimes against countries with whom they have common interests uh, on other topics. Is that uh, an effective tool? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I mean, the U.N. Uh, Security Council and the American veto power over there is crucial. It's indispensable for Israel. I would say if I put in the balance the entire military aid, uh, the $4 billion, and the veto power, the veto power is much more important than anything else. Israel can pretty much take, uh, can take care of itself when it comes to military um, defense. We have always said we want to defense, def be able to defend ourselves by ourselves. This is the capability that we need to, uh, to keep. But why? If, if you go a bit further, the whole idea of the uh, UN and the Security Council is that you, a country, can be found in breach of uh, peace of the world, and therefore other countries are given um, a legitimacy in opposing you. But who listens to the uh, UN Security Council anymore? Well, this is why, positively, they cannot bring about peace, they cannot bring about prosperity or anything which would be forward-looking. But they have the power to hinder, to stop, to take back. And the uh, mixing of each other, of Russia today and the United States, keeps it paralyzed, pretty much. For Israel's uh, benefit, it was uh, he very helpful. Because without the United States uh, veto power, we know, unfortunately, there is an automatic uh, majority against us because there are so many Arab countries, Muslim countries, and uh, we would have been expelled long ago without the Security Council. You can see what happens in the General Assembly, where the UN, uh, where the U.S. doesn't have the veto power. You see, we are just almost a pariah state. The same goes for UNESCO or the, uh, the Council for Human Rights in, in Geneva. Unfortunately for us... Um, from a uh, jurisdiction point of view, only the Security Council can really uh, impose sanctions through uh, Chapter uh, 7, 
can um, declare war on a, on a country. And here, this is where it's indispensable. And there, there is no UN police force unless the host countries exactly. agree. And what about the unilateral sanctions, which the Americans uh, have uh, become so adapted? Well, unfortunately, we have not seen them uh, too effective. And um, when they do not work, uh, the only solution was so far to add more and to add more. And we have not seen it effective. I think now with the Biden administration, they go back to more uh, rational look at sanctions. Uh, there are some who say, well, had uh, Trump been uh, reelected, the sanctions would have uh, worked. I'm not very much sure because there are holes. There is not a, just a bucket of sanctions. There are holes because of China, because of Russia, because of other uh, countries. So today in a pol polarized world, even if you're a superpower like the United States, unilaterally, you cannot do much. But, but It, just to say, uh, sanctions uh, hurt, don't they? Absolutely I think hurt. sometimes we look for a silver bullet But when we think they don't do nothing. It certainly hurt, right? It's not that they can totally cripple the economy. If But they're multilateral. I, I do not know a case If where they, uh, they uh, brought about a regime change. Yeah, that I understand. Now, it, it, is well, it is well known that the longest part of speeches begins with the, world, with the words, in conclusion. <laughs> But you only have 10 to 15 uh, seconds each to conclude. Reuven. I would look the, at the bottom of the scale in every parameter. Media coverage, as I said before, even who's more powerful, I would say the superpowers today that have a lot to lose, maybe from them we're going to see more stability. For instance, I don't think China is going to attack Taiwan in our lifetime. So probably go to the Africa again, to these undergoverned states with terror, with famine, with so many problems and migration and human suffering. You have three seconds uh, credit for the next program. Iran? I would just point from our perspective to the fact that Israel today is placed to be a, contrib a, a major contributor to solutions in, in several of these fields, particularly water. We lead the world in both desalinization and reuse. And, we can, and, and as countries face the crisis that Mary described, we can be of help. Very, very brief, Nanny. I think in the Middle East, there is no option between Jeffersonian democracy and totalitarianism. Thank you, Miri. Water. If you don't have it, you're going to go find it. Please, we brought water here. Thank you very much, all of you. Danny Ayalon, Miri Eisen, Iran Lehman, yes. Ruven Ben Shalom. And we will have another program of Powers in Play in a few weeks' time. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.